Good evening. Good evening and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon. And on behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran Church of Plymouth, which jointly presents the Faith and Life Lecture Series, it is my privilege and pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Just a word about the flow for the evening after our speaker gets up and speaks for probably 45 or 50 minutes, or a little less, we'll see something about like that. There'll be a chance for you to ask him some questions, so I would encourage you to be thinking about questions you would like to ask him following the talk. We'll have 20 minutes or so of Q&A. You'll be able to ask questions either at one of these floor mics. We'll also have a roving uh, reporter with a wireless mic. Following the presentation, you will have a chance, if you don't have it, to purchase the book, The Hole in the Gospel, in the back. It's on sale tonight for $10, and uh, our speaker is happy to inscribe the book for you as well. Sorry, did I miss something? No? Okay. You know, one of the, you can read our speaker's bio in the program, but I always ask speakers if there's something unusual or interesting, particularly interesting, that I can mention as I introduce them. Uh, and our speaker tonight, when I asked him that, said, well, you could tell them that I collect comic books. <laughs> From a little hand for comic books, good. From the 50s and 60s, I think the way he said it was that he's buying back his childhood off of eBay. So if you didn't know that about him, you do now. It is our profound privilege and pleasure to have with us tonight Mr. Richard Stearns. Would you help me welcome him? Well, it is a real privilege to be with you tonight. And I, uh, I was going to, in my remarks, it said thank you for coming out on a snowy winter evening but uh, in Minnesota to hear a speaker, but I think I have to say, you call this winter? What a bunch of wimps you are out here. You've been whining all year about a, a hard winter. I don't see it. I don't see it. You know, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, which is statistically the snowiest city in the United States with 120 inches of average annual snowfall. Uh, so I can't even take it from Minnesota. You, you, you can't top me in, in, in that. Now, it probably does get colder here than it does in Syracuse because you get a lot of below zero days. But, um, and now I live in Seattle where the sun never shines. So <laughs> at least it was sunny today, and I, I really felt welcomed in, uh, in Minneapolis and the Twin Cities area. So thanks for coming. Um, I want to begin tonight by telling you a story, first about two 19-year-old girls and then a story about two Sundays in uh, last December, the month of December. The first of these 19-year-old girls is my youngest daughter, Grace. She is a sophomore at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. Now, she can talk about weather down in Malibu, California. And whenever I go there, it's right on the Pacific Ocean, I wonder if any studying gets done. And I get these text messages at all times of the day. I saw Clint Eastwood at the Starbucks, you know, I saw you know, whoever, uh, a lot of movie stars there. Um, Grace is the youngest of our children. We have five children, and she has had the blessing of growing up in a stable Christian home with parents who love her, although she might not always agree that it's been a blessing to her. And like most American parents, we have done everything we know how to do to show her our love and uh, give her every opportunity for a great future uh, for her life. We pay for her very large tuition bill and fees. 
We keep her fed, we keep her in clothing, sometimes more costly than the tuition. And uh, we, we have taken every opportunity over her short lifetime to praise every little thing that she's done that's been positive, every soccer team she's ever played on, every hideous crayon drawing she's ever done, every Christmas ornament made of macaroni she's ever brought home. Uh, and we praised her, as I'm sure most of you have with your kids. Well, this year, Grace spent a wonderful year abroad in Heidelberg, Germany, the study abroad year. She had an amazing year. She had no classes on Friday, and she and her friends traveled all over Europe on a Eurail pass, staying in hostels. And just a list of some of the places she's been for the weekend in the last six months, Paris, Berlin, Rome, Florence, Madrid, Lucerne, Budapest, London, Athens, Istanbul, and Jerusalem. And that's not a complete list. The bottom line is that Grace has had a pretty sweet year abroad this year. And uh, she rolls her eyes and says, oh, Dad, give me a break, when I tell her that as uh, her father made my first trip to another state uh, when I was 20. I never left New York State until I was 20. I had to wait for the snow to melt before I could get out. And um, my first trip to another country was, I was 31 years old when I went to London on business. Uh, because my generation did not travel like this generation travels. I have made up for a little lost time, though, at World Vision. Uh, and I have traveled about a million and a half miles in the last 10 years or so. So I'm making up for lost time. Well, anyways, that's the story of my daughter, Grace. So I want you to keep her life in mind. Uh, girl number one. Uh, the second girl, also 19-year-olds, I want to tell you about is a Bolivian girl named Ruth. Well, I, I met Ruth just about 60 days ago on a trip to Bolivia to visit World Vision Projects, and Ruth has a very different story. She was born into a poor Bolivian family, and Ruth was abandoned by her father at birth. She never met her biological father. She grew up in a mud brick home with a dirt floor with no running water, no electricity. She came to age in a community where very few ever make it to high school, let alone girls, especially girls. But Ruth was a World Vision-sponsored child, and she and her family received some help over the years uh, from World Vision. W Ruth got to participate in our youth empowerment program in Bolivia, where we work with children and youth to develop them as leaders, future leaders, for their communities. We really believe in the potential of young people and children to change the game in poor communities around the world, if only they have the education and the encouragement and the self-esteem to actually do that. So we try to build their confidence and their self-esteem in a world where everyone else is telling them that they are nobodies. We work with these kids to help them develop a vision for a better future for themselves, for their peers, for their communities. We expose them uh, wherever possible to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news. We explain how their lives can be transformed by God's love and forgiveness. And we try to nurture in them the values that Christ taught us of compassion and justice and forgiveness and love. And these groups of young people all around the world often have amazingly positive impacts on their communities and even on their families. Now Ruth, uh, as part of this program, the youth group decided that one of the problems in their community was domestic abuse, especially for girls and women and, and children as well, more broadly. So Ruth led her small group, she became a leader in the group, uh, in a plan where they were going to do some demonstrations and actually petition the Bolivian government 
to open a legal office in their community where abused women and children could go for help and could go register a complaint, an official complaint with the government against the person that was abusing them, sometimes a father or husband or sometimes an uncle, and they could get some help. She even, uh, uh, she even marched in the streets in front of government offices with the other teenagers to uh, call on the government to do this. And believe it or not, the government actually responded to this organized effort by the young people, and they did open such an office in, uh, near Cochabamba, Bolivia, uh, that the kids had petitioned for. Well, from this experience, Ruth started to develop her own vision about what she could be, and she determined that she wanted to stay in school, which would be against the norm, that someday she would become a lawyer and a legal advocate who would help women and children who had suffered abuses. But when Ruth was about 15, even though she was still in high school, her dream was shattered. Money was tight for a family with eight children. She was one of eight. And Ruth's mother pulled her out of school and insisted that she, go, she was old enough now to go to the city and work and send money back to help the rest of the family. So she moved to Cochabamba and lived with an uncle. And uh, she basically had to work like a scullery maid. She, she was rented out to be a maid for wealthy people and boarding houses, cleaning rooms and toilets and bathrooms and making beds and all of that. Well, this little girl, Ruth, was devastated as she left school and had to work such long hours with no hope of getting her education that she dreamed about. She even hinted to me as she told me her story that she'd maybe been abused by this uncle that she had to live with. After about six months of this, she couldn't take it any longer and she ran away. And not knowing where to go, she ran and came back home and she just told her mother, I can't do it anymore. I, I, I just can't do this and I need to finish high school. Well, the mother allowed her to come back home for a spell, but within a few months, her mother made the decision that she and the rest of the children were moving to Argentina and that Ruth could not come because Ruth was old enough to take care of herself and if she was going to stay in school, she could not come in Ar to Argentina unless she was going to quit school and work. And so now Ruth was abandoned by her mother and was left alone in Bolivia at 15 to take care of herself. She ended up staying with some friends and other relatives over the next few years. Now just try to imagine the pain that this young girl had to endure. She was now totally alone, so she hired herself out to do whatever work she could find in the community. She ended up doing very hard manual labor while she stayed in high school, tried to stay in high school. And one day she injured herself quite badly when she tried to lift something that was too heavy for her to lift. And as she described it, she said, I was in terrible pain and I couldn't even stand upright to walk. So she said, I, I kind of crawled and stumbled uh, to the World Vision office uh, in her community called Tarake. And uh, I pleaded for help. And the World Vision staff saw her and they saw how serious her injury was. And so they took her to the city about an hour away. Uh, and she was admitted immediately for surgery on a very severe hernia. And uh, World Vision was able to pay for the surgery, and Ruth recovered from that. But without World Vision's intervention, she, we don't know what would have happened because there's no way she could have afforded that surgery. So I met Ruth uh, in January, uh, probably a year after the surgery, a year or two after the surgery, and she told me her story uh, sitting in a, a little mud house, tears running down her face. Um, against all odds, now at 19, she has graduated from high school. She made it all on her own. 
Uh, and unbelievably to me, she told me that she is now living back in Cochabamba with a different uncle, and she's enrolled in the university, and she is determined that she's going to become a lawyer. And uh, she works day and night, uh, all kinds of odd jobs, desperately trying to earn the money that she needs. And this is one of her quotes uh, from the interview. We transcribed it. She said, I am completely alone always. It takes a lot of courage to keep going and to keep doing this alone. I want to be a professional five years from now. In spite of my problems, I am always smiling. I have been many places and learned many things. I've learned from the Bible. I've learned from my mistakes. I stand up from failures. Even if inside I am dying, I pass my joy to others. We have to go forward. That is why God gave us life. With God's help, I will. I trust God and myself that I will be able to do it. Well, at this point in the interview, I was crying like a baby as well. And I told Ruth about my 19-year-old daughter, Grace, and how much I love her and support her so that she can pursue her dreams someday. I said to Ruth, that's what a father is supposed to do for his children. And then Ruth said the words that I will never forget as long as I live. I don't know how a father loves his daughter. I don't know how a father loves his daughter. Well, hearing this come out of this young girl's mouth just about tore my heart out. And after my meeting with Ruth that day, I spoke to the World Vision staff there, and I told them that I personally wanted to do something to help. I wanted this girl just once in her life to feel the love of a father. And I was able, after some discussions with our World Vision staff, you get to do anything you want when you're the president, which is nice. <laughs> and, and by the way, this violates every World Vision policy in the book. <laughs> but we were able to set up a bank account for Ruth in Bolivia that would have a co-signatory. The World Vision project manager would be a co-signatory, and Ruth would be a co-signatory. And I can put money in that account. My wife and I have decided to do this. Uh, so that Ruth can, we can help Ruth pay her tuition so she doesn't have to work 12 hours a day. And we can help her realize her dream. Because, you know, Ruth is a winner. And all I'm doing is betting on a winner. Um, and I just want this young girl to know that somebody cares about her somewhere in the world because she's never had that in her life. She's never had that. I want her to be able to go to school without always feeling desperate and afraid about what might happen to her and how will she possibly do this. And frankly, the cost is fairly minor, certainly compared to US universities. And so now I have four children in college instead of three. Uh, I've got two at Pepperdine and one at Wheaton. And I've got Ruth. And I'm especially excited because I was so thrilled about my experience in Bolivia with World Vision that I came home and I talked to my daughter, Grace, and she's always wanted to go uh, to Latin America, somewhere in South America, to volunteer for a summer. So she's going to spend about a month or five weeks in Bolivia this summer volunteering on the communications team to write up stories and send them back to the US office as an intern. And uh, my two daughters are going to get to meet each other this summer in Bolivia. Well, that's my story about two girls in two different places with two different lives and circumstances. Now I need to tell you about the two different Sundays. On Friday, December 3rd this past year, Renee and I had breakfast with Laura Bush. We were at the annual World Vision Women's AIDS Day breakfast in Manhattan. And Laura Bush was the keynote speaker that day, and so we sat at the head table with Mrs. Bush. 
The very next morning, Renee and I had breakfast in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. We flew to Haiti that night, and that morning we were in Port-au-Prince. Now, on Sunday, December 5th, which was all right, Friday with Laura Bush, Saturday in Port-au-Prince, Sunday, Renee and I went to a worship service that we will not soon forget. We had the opportunity to attend, attend a church service in the middle of a, what we call an IDP camp, or a refugee camp. It was a sprawling camp filled with tents for about 10,000 displaced people who were refugees in their own country. Now the church was just a crude structure in the middle of this squalor made out of UN, uh, UN tarps. I'm sure the UN would be horrified to know that their tarps were used to build a church. Uh, <laughs> but it was, made, it was cobbled together with scrap lumber and scrap metal and these UN tarpaulins. And we were amazed as we approached the church and we saw hundreds of people streaming through the refugee camp, uh, making their way to that little church. And to our astonishment, the worship service that morning was just filled with joy and hope and praises to God. In fact, uh, they didn't have one preacher preach a sermon. They were on the second preacher preaching a 30-minute sermon after two hours when we finally had to leave the service to do some other things. But they just kept going and going and going full of hope, full of courage, and overflowing with thanksgiving to God. And I was puzzled at how they could so enthusiastically express such joy. You know, it made no sense to me as an entitled American who grouses at the smallest inconveniences in my own life. And yet here in this place, people who had literally lost everything because of that earthquake in 2010 expressed nothing but praise and thanksgiving to God. Now, in the front row of this little church, I actually had people sitting in the front row in that church. Uh, <laughs> in the front row of that church, just the front row, there were six amputees sitting there, ranging in age from six, a little girl six who had lost a leg, to a man maybe in his 60s who had lost a leg as well. And these amputees were clapping and smiling as they sang song after song and lifted their praises to God. One of them was named Demosi. And in fact, Demosi was not in the front row, but she was actually leading the choir. Now, Demosi had not lost one limb in the earthquake, but two. She had lost her right arm and her left leg. Both had to be amputated after she had been trapped for four days, crushed under a building. And by the time she was rescued, it was too late to save those two limbs. But here she was, up in front and leading the choir, leading prayers for the congregation, standing on one prosthetic leg and one real leg, and lifting her one hand high in praise to God, her courage, her strength, her dignity, setting an example for everyone in that church and everyone in that tent camp, who looked at her believing that if she could pick herself up and get on with her life after what she had lost, that surely they could get on with their lives, given what they had lost. And as she sang the hymn, she clapped with one hand, like this, praising the Lord. Following the service, we went to where Demosi lives in this camp, with her two daughters, aged 8 and 10. She's a single mother. Now, I want you to imagine that after you've lost two limbs in a trauma like that, you've lost your home and your job, that you now have to live in a tent just five foot by eight foot for the next 12 months. That was Demosi's story. She ended up in a five foot by eight foot tent for the next 12 months. 
We sat, Renee and I were there, and we talked at her to her length, trying to understand her source of strength. And Demosi told us that she's deeply grateful because God spared her life on that day of the earthquake. She has no bitterness, not even any signs of depression, and she hopes to get a job as a seller in the market when she gets her new arm. She's in line for a prosthetic arm that World Vision's trying to arrange for her. And she also hoped to receive one of the temporary homes that World Vision had started to build in the Karai camp. And I just got an email about three weeks ago that she has now moved into a small temporary shelter that is uh, plywood and cement slab. So she actually has uh, a house with a roof over her head now, which I'm gratified. I asked her what she would like me to tell people back in the United States about her, and she smiled a big smile, and she said, you tell them that you've seen Lazarus, and she's back from the dead. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> you see, Demosi believes that she was saved for a reason. She was saved to have another chance to raise her two girls and to serve her God for a few more years. She be believes God gave her a second chance for a reason. The very next Sunday, Renee and I returned to our home church in Seattle to find it decked out for the Advent season, Sunday, December 12th. Two 25-foot Christmas trees graced the sanctuary, adorned with festive banners and garlands, lights and decorations, pine boughs and poinsettias all around the congregation. The children's choir came in that day to grade school, all dressed up, and they adoringly sang, Go Tell It on the Mountain, uh, for all the congregation to enjoy. And the largest pipe organ west of the Mississippi filled the sanctuary with the beloved Christmas hymns and Christmas music. And undoubtedly that day as the service ended, many of the worshipers left and went to the malls to finish their last minute Christmas shopping. Or maybe they went home to catch the football game on TV that day. Well, I think you can see where I'm going with this. Here was the body of Christ in Haiti, stricken, suffering, poor, desperate, and the body of Christ in Seattle, Washington, comfortable, affluent, insulated. And here were two 19-year-old girls, one blessed with every possible opportunity, and the other one alone, abused, abandoned, with no one to help her. You see, these two stories are stories of disparity. Disparity. They're stories that illustrate the extreme dis disparity that we find between the haves and the have-nots in our world. And my question for you tonight is this. What do you think God sees when he looks down on these two churches and these two girls? What does he make of this incredible disparity? And how does he view us when he hears their desperate prayers but finds us either blissfully unaware or, worse still, numbingly apathetic? And this brings me to the message I really wanted to share with you tonight. You know, I just asked this question about disparity and how God sees it, but let me ask you the question of how do you view the world that we live in? You see, this lecture series is about faith and life, and it raises questions about worldview. You know, we all have a worldview, whether we know it or not, or can articulate it or not, and it affects almost everything about our lives. It affects the way we think, it affects the way we behave, it affects the decisions we make, it affects our attitudes, toward our work, toward our world, toward our wealth. It's all shaped by our worldview. But we need to ask whether our worldview is compatible or congruent with the way God sees the world. Well, let me contrast two different worldviews for you tonight. They're very different. 
And I want you to think about which of these two worldviews best describes your own, because worldview matters. The first one I call the Magic Kingdom worldview. In the Magic Kingdom worldview, the world is a wonderful and fascinating place. It's like a gigantic theme park. It's filled with magnificent monuments and historical places, cultural attractions, African safaris, ecotourism, quaint bed and breakfasts, coffee houses, fabulous restaurants and foods. It's the world of culture and knowledge and human achievement and technology. It's the world of art and literature and beauty. It's the world of business and entrepreneurship, wealth and capitalism. You see, in the Magic Kingdom worldview, people struggle with what I like to call first world problems. Where to spend their vacations, how to decorate their homes, where to invest their wealth, what kind of car they will drive, which diet and workout regimen is most effective, and how much money to leave to their children. All we have to do to enjoy the Magic Kingdom is buy our ticket and go in and explore it. And for those of us who can afford the ticket, it's a pretty amazing ride. Well, all of those things are true about the world we live in. I've seen many of those things, and that's the world I've lived in most of my life. But there's also a darker and more sinister and more depressing view of the world that I'd like to talk about tonight. I call this one the tragic kingdom, and it's very different, but it's also true. You see, in the tragic kingdom view of the world, we only have to begin with the headlines of the last week, the earthquake and tsunami that devastated the lives of tens of thousands across Japan. If you've not felt the punch in your gut while watching the images on TV, you're not fully human. They were just visceral, gut-wrenching images of people suffering. Or, or last year's Haiti, Haiti earthquake, which took 230,000 lives and left a million people like Demosi homeless in just 60 seconds. Last summer, there were massive floods in Pakistan that covered 20% of the country and forced 4 million people from their homes. In the tragic kingdom, millions of people are starving to death right now. There are severe famines in North Korea, northern Kenya, and Somalia. In fact, tonight as we sit here, 1 billion people are slowly starving to death across our globe. Then there's the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Darfur, the violence and tension in the Middle East, the 20-year war in the Congo during which thousands and thousands of women have been brutally raped, a war that has taken five million lives in the last 20 years that most Americans have never even heard of. And let's not forget the violence in Iraq and Afghanistan and just recently the wave of protests across Egypt and Tunisia and Bahrain and Libya there's nuclear threats still in Iran and North Korea. In the tragic kingdom, people struggle with the consequences of climate change and ethnic and religious hatreds and violence, the blight of human trafficking, pandemic diseases like AIDS, cholera, tuberculosis, swine flu, and the staggering problem faced by Africa's 50 million orphaned children. But let's not leave out the statistics of widespread and brutal poverty. The fact that 2.4 billion people live on less than $2 a day, 1 million die each year of malaria, most of them are children, 33 million across the planet are living with HIV and AIDS, 1 billion people lack even a cup of clean water to drink, 2 billion don't have a toilet that they can use. And the most shocking statistic of all is the one about children, that 24,000 children under the age of five die every single day 
of preventable, largely preventable causes simply because they're poor. That's almost nine million children a year, one every three and a half seconds. The tragic kingdom is the reality that young Ruth and Bolivia and Demosi and Haiti were born into. And this is the world into which more than half of the world's children will be born, a world that brutalizes children in unimaginable ways. You see, that's the tragic kingdom worldview, and it's very different from the magic kingdom, but it's also true. It's also the reason I don't get invited more than once to speak anywhere, because it's so depressing. <laughs> I'm not a cheerful speaker. You know, most Americans don't know much about this tragic kingdom. In fact, they go out of their way to avoid it, because they don't like it. Don't we all really prefer the theme park view of the world? I do. But there's a third worldview for us to consider, the view from a different kingdom. It's called the kingdom of God. And it beckons us to ask the question of what God sees when he looks at this world, the world that he loved so much that he sent his only begotten son to die for it, that we might have eternal life. So what does God see when he sees, what does God think when he sees this unbearable suffering of the poor and the oppressed around the world? And then he looks at us, the wealthiest and best resourced nation of Christians in the 2,000 year history of the Christian faith. What does the kingdom of God have to say about disparity? You see, the children that died yesterday and today around the world, they weren't our children, they weren't yours or mine, but they were God's children. They were the children of the poorest of the poor, and their deaths were caused by the conditions they were born into. They died from complications in childbirth, miles away from medical care. They died of hunger, malnutrition, weakened immune systems, they died from waterborne diseases present in the water they're forced to drink. They died from simple respiratory infections and diarrhea, from malaria and yellow fever and HIV and AIDS. But most tragically of all, they died from causes that could easily have been prevented. But if I were the coroner and I were filling out those death certificates of those 24,000 children, I would write one word as cause of death, apathy. Apathy of world leaders, apathy of the news media, apathy of the gen general public. But I think what most breaks the heart of God is when he sees apathy within the church. There's a question that appears on the cover of my book, The Hole in Our Gospel, that gets at this basic issue. It's a simple question. What does God expect of us? I then spend the next 300 pages trying to answer it. You know, I believe that every Christian is confronted with the reality, who, every Christian confronted with the realities in our world has to answer this basic question. Just what is it that God expects of me? The thesis of my book is that there's something missing, that there's a gaping hole in the way we understand the gospel. Because we fail to grasp the meaning of the kingdom of God that Christ spoke about so often in the New Testament. This word gospel, which means good news, when most of us think of the gospel, we think in terms of the good news that Christ died for our sins and that we can now be forgiven and reconciled to God. And that is certainly good news. But is it all of the good news? I believe that this view of the gospel is one-dimensional. It's a view that often sees the gospel as just a transaction between me and God that is profoundly personal. Some people approach this transaction almost like they're buying a fire insurance policy. 
They buy the policy, put it in the drawer, and go back to the party. I'm covered. They change nothing in their lives. You see, this incomplete view of the gospel makes no demands on our behavior. It makes no demands on our money. It makes no demands on our compassion. And evangelism just becomes the process of getting as many people to buy the same life insurance policy that we bought, period. But is that really all that God expects of you and I? Is that a world-changing view of the gospel? Or have we replaced the powerful, high-definition, technicolor gospel that Jesus proclaimed with a shrunken black-and-white version, a shadow of the real thing? I believe that the gospel, the message of Christ, was meant to be so much more. It was meant to literally ignite a revolution, a revolution that would build God's kingdom on earth, led by Christ's followers on earth. This kingdom revolution began at the cross. It would begin in the most personal and private way for us as our sins were individually forgiven through Christ's death on the cross and our acceptance of that gift. But it would culminate in a most public way as each one of us, forgiven and now empowered by the Holy Spirit, would go into the world proclaiming publicly this good news, but also being the good news as we reached out to our fellow man with compassion, fueled and driven by love, Christ's love, Christ's love expressed in tangible ways to a hurting world. You see, this gospel is so much more than a private transaction between God and us. It's so much more than just a recital of a sinner's prayer. It's a vision of a changed people, changing and challenging the world we live in, the prevailing values and practices of the world that we see around us. It's a gospel not just of faith, but a gospel of action. It's not just about talk, but it's also about walking the walk. I was hungry, Jesus said, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me in prison, and you came to me. I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. You see, this was the good news the gospel was meant to bring. This was the good news that had the power to change the world. Jesus called this the coming of the kingdom of God, something we acknowledge every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, so how have we Christians done? Have we been that good news for the poor? I'm afraid if we look back at history, it shows a track record that's not very flattering. Let me just give a couple of examples. Between the year 1620 and the beginning of the 20th century, our European ancestors, most of whom came here for religious freedom, systematically marginalized and exterminated the Native American people groups. Some Christians participated in this slaughter directly. Others sat silently watching. Today we would call it genocide. During that same period, Christians supported and perpetuated slavery in our country and ultimately fought desperately to preserve it in a civil war that cost millions of American lives. Southern slave owners would go to church on Sunday morning and beat or rape their slaves on Sunday evening. Now, were there opposing voices within the church at the time? Yes, but they were minority voices, and they were insufficient to end slavery for hundreds of years because the majority prevailed. And I don't know about you, but are you as ashamed as I am that my own parents lived in an America that would deny African Americans basic human rights and simple human dignity? This 
American apartheid was done with the knowledge and active participation of many American churches and Christians. It was another shameful chapter in the history of the American church. And today, 50, 60 years later, we ask, how could they have been so blind? How could they have been so blind? But unless we become arrogant, let me ask, what about us? Is our eyesight any better than my parents' and grandparents' eyesight was? Where are the holes in our 21st century gospel? Maybe it will be that while we built bigger and bigger church sanctuaries to meet our consumptive needs, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the global south lived and died in demeaning poverty, ravaged by hunger, thirst, disease, and war. Maybe it will be that in the wealthiest community of Christians in 2,000 years, we give just 2.4% of our income to the Lord's work, 75% less than the biblical tithe. Maybe it will be that we marched in the streets to oppose health care reform while 14 million American children go without health care every day, living beneath the poverty line with no access. Or maybe, and I'll get controversial here, maybe it'll be that while we invested all of our great passion and energy to stop gay marriage, we turned a deaf ear to the cries of those 24,000 children who die every single day. It's interesting to me in the Bible that it says that the sin of Sodom that most outraged God was not their sexual immorality. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel said. He said, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. Ezekiel 16. Do those words describe us? Arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, not helping the poor and the needy? For I was hungry while you had all you needed. I was thirsty, but you drank fine wines. I was a stranger, and you wanted me deported. I needed clothes, but you needed more clothes. I was sick, and you pointed out the behaviors that led to my sickness. I was in prison, and you said I was getting what I deserved. I wonder if this is a more accurate rendering of that passage in Matthew 25 for many in our country. So let me ask you, where did this hole in our gospel come from? How did we come to trade God's expansive kingdom vision of a world transformed by his followers for the world that we see around us today? How did we trade God's exhortation to go into all the earth to be salt and light and to be his ambassadors to the least and the lost for bigger churches and better cars and more luxurious houses and a quest for our own personal gratification and comfort? These are tough questions. You see, many of us have bought into the American dream as if it came directly to us from Scripture. You know, the fact that we live in a country where anyone who works hard and uses their God-given gifts can succeed and create wealth, that's a good thing. But Scripture never tells us that this money is ours to use as we please. And it certainly doesn't follow from Scripture that accumulating more and more stuff in the pursuit of our own comfort and luxury is somehow what God expects of us. Is God really pleased to see us living large while Demosi in Haiti lives in a five by eight foot tent after losing her arm and her leg in an earthquake? This isn't what scripture teaches us about success and money and prosperity. In the book of Deuteronomy, just before the Israelites ended their 40 years in the wilderness, and we're about to enter the promised land, dripping with milk and honey. There's metaphors here, analogies to America. This was God's warning to the people before they went in. 
He said this, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you'll forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you even the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers. To me, this passage speaks directly to the mentality of the American dream, the belief that our power and the strength of our hands have produced this wealth. You see, God felt a need to refute this line of thinking even before the Israelites entered the promised land because he knew the dangers that wealth would confront his people with. And in the very next verse, he tells them what the consequences will be for failing to heed his warning. He says, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Well, let me circle back and try to answer the question I posed at the beginning. In a world characterized by the heartbreaking disparities I've described, what does God expect of us? You know, in Matthew, an expert in the law asked this same question of Jesus in a very direct way, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? In other words, what do you expect of us, Lord? And for those who like to keep it simple, Jesus gave us a very simple answer. This is what he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the answer to the question, what does God expect of us, is actually very, very simple. Love God and love our fellow man, period. And as it turns out, these two commandments, if we really took them seriously, absolutely have the power to change the world. Well, how do we apply all of this to our lives, to our worldviews? It can all be very confusing, and it seems like there's so many choices that we have to confront about our lives, our careers, our families, our money. How can we live in such a way that our lives are pleasing to God? Now, I don't claim to have any profound answer to this question, but I have a metaphor that might be helpful. And by the way, I am no Mother Teresa. I struggle with all these same things. I'm going to make a confession tonight. We remodeled our bathroom this year. <laughs> and I feel really guilty about it. Um, but the shower is really sweet, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I take vacations. I go out to restaurants for dinner, take my family. I struggle with all these same issues. Well, I suspect that most of you own a GPS navigation device of some kind, or have at least used one. A few years ago, I got one for Christmas, and yes, I realize the money spent on that could have fed children for a month somewhere. But here's how a GPS works. You start by entering a destination. Where is it that you want to go? Where do you want your journey to take you? And as it turns out, 
Determining your desired destination is the most important step of all because your chosen destination will determine every one of the other steps on the journey. Which roads you will take, which turns you will take, how to avoid roadblocks and all of the places you'll have to pass through along the way getting your destination. The GPS will even tell you how to get back on the right road after you make made a wrong turn. I don't know about you, but my GPS cheerfully cheap, uh, chirps, recalculating, recalculating every time I've made a mistake and I get freaked out and I have to figure out how to get back on the road, but it gives me directions on how to get back. I think we've all been a, at places in our life where we needed to recalculate because we'd taken a bad road. But here's the thing about the GPS. If you get the destination wrong, then all of the steps along the way will be wrong as well. And the same is true in life. If we enter the wrong destination, it will lead us away from God's plan for our lives. So what GPS destination have you entered for your lives? Here are a few destination possibilities that I think are quite popular in America. We could enter destinations like these. My destination is professional success. Personal and family happiness. That's not a bad thing. Or how about these? Wealth and power. Fame and influence. That could be a destination. Comfort and security. That could be a life destination. I want a comfortable, secure life. Or maybe some combination of all of these. You see, all of these are deceptively attractive life goals. But let's see what driving directions we might get with the with destinations like these. Our GPS might offer us directions like the following. Look out for number one. Drive hard and fast and stay on the highway at all costs. Become a workaholic. Avoid costly detours like time with family and friends, relationship or service to others. Spend your money to get the things you want because you've earned it. Put on the blinders and look away from the global problems of the poor and needy. You don't want to get distracted, and they can't help you on your journey. Don't let your religious faith make too many demands on the rest of your life. Keep it in a safe zone. Turn off your moral compass. It can be so inconvenient. Let the ends justify the means. Those are some of the things that might flash across our screen if we set a destination of success or wealth but what if you entered a different life destination? Not success or happiness or comfort. Let's try entering the one that Jesus suggested. Destination, love God and love my neighbor. With this new destination, the GPS would spit out a whole different set of instructions. And we might see things like these. Put the needs of others ahead of your own. Take detours when someone needs your help. Keep your relationship with God as your north star. Make your work a means to the end of serving God, not an end unto itself. Use your money to build God's kingdom, not yours. Don't confuse career success with being a successful person. Get off the highway to spend time with family and friends, even though it slows you down. Invest your time, talent, and treasure in being rich toward God rather than getting rich yourself. Stop to help those broken down on the side of the road who need a little help on their journeys and pay close attention to your moral compass. You know, being a follower of Christ in our world today is not defined by two or three momentous events in our lives 
It's not even about what happens on Sunday mornings or even our weekly Bible study groups. It's about the thousands of daily twists and turns, detours and choices that make up the very fabric of our lives. It's about a life well lived for Christ by those who know their destination and who take seriously the role God has given them to play as full participants in his kingdom work. God offers us all this amazing opportunity to share in the work of his kingdom, building his kingdom. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, the Apostle Paul once wrote, as though God were making his appeal through us. Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. We have the great privilege of being the hands and feet of Christ to a hurting world. And each one of us in this room has been invited by Christ to change the world. And there are, are a thousand ways we can participate. We can provide food to the hungry, but we can mentor a young person who needs a role model. We can visit with a lonely senior citizen. We can comfort someone who's sick or afflicted with a disease. We can welcome an immigrant family into our community. We can bring the good news of the gospel to someone who's never heard it. We can even save the life of a child halfway around the world. You see, these are profoundly meaningful and significant things. And Christ calls us into this work, the master's work to build the master's kingdom. These are the things that are deeply human and moral and right. And they're the very things that demonstrate that we are beings made in God's image, that we are children of the king, the capacity to love, the capacity to give, the capacity to grieve and rejoice. These are the things in which we find our true significance and purpose as children of God. Well, let me ask you one final question. If you could write your own obituary, what would you choose to include? How would you want it to read? Would you want to write about the cars and the toys you've owned, the real estate you've bought, the job titles you've held, the list of investment gains and business deals you've made? I don't think most of us would want to write that into our obituaries. Wouldn't we instead want to write about the people we've loved, the lives we've enriched, the things we've done to help others, our relationship with God? Wouldn't we want to write about the difference we've made in our world? Don't we all want our lives to make a difference? You know, there's an anonymous quote which I love. It'll make you chuckle. It goes like this. You should endeavor to live in such a way that when you die, even the undertaker will be sorry. You know, we don't get the chance to write our own obituaries, but we do get to live the life that the writer will write about. We do get the chance to determine what our legacy will be. And I want to close tonight with this one passage from the book of Job, a book we don't read that often. It's a book about legacy. You see, Job was a man, despite all of his suffering and all of the things that happened to him, he was a man who was at peace with the choices he had made in his life. And in this passage, he was describing what he felt his legacy might be. And as I read these words, I'll close with this. Ask yourself what you hope your legacy might be. These are the words of Job. Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me, because I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist him, the man who was dying blessed me, 
I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked. And I snatched the victims from their teeth. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. We might actually invite you to come back someday. <laughs> I'll let him rest his voice for just a minute. And again, if you have some questions, you can be thinking about those. But I want to make a couple announcements. John, if you want to grab the mic, it's right where I was sitting. Um, first of all, uh, your programs, I always have to struggle to call it a program, not a bulletin. The program includes the, the, the next and final event in this year's Faith and Life lecture series. Uh, Kevin Kling will be here on Friday, April 15th. Again, 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, Kevin Kling is a well-known storyteller. There have actually been a couple papers about him in the Star Tribune this past week. I hope you can join us for that if you're able. If you would like to be reminded about upcoming events and are not currently on our mailing list, I would encourage you to fill out this green form and just give us your email. It's a very efficient and uh, inexpensive way for us to communicate. I promise we won't fill your email too much, but just give us your email and you can leave this form in the baskets in the narthex. Also, we are hard at work putting together next year's series. We have three of our five speakers set with a fourth likely. Uh, so that means there's still one opening, which we're working hard to fill. But if you have ideas of topics or individuals, you're welcome to place those names uh, or topics on the green sheet. Uh, and we'll consider that either for next year or perhaps for a later year. I always like to, to thank our sponsors. Uh, you are here this evening free charge, no cost to hear a wonderful speaker like Mr. Stearns here. Thanks to the generosity of all of the individuals and organizations who make this series possible. I'll list just uh, the corporate sponsors, Thrivent Financial for Lutherans, the crossroad group of Thrivent Productivity Incorporated, a company here in Plymouth, TCF Bank, the St. Philip and Deacon Foundation, Leaders Manufacturing, uh, Luther Seminary is actually a partner, Fuzzy Duck Design, and the bookcase as well, and then you can see all of the other names in, in your program. Many of the people who support this series are here this evening. Would you join me in saying thank you to them? I'm gonna make one additional announcement. We, we have never in the eight year history of this series done this. I feel very strongly that this is intended to be a community service free and open to the public. We never charge. I don't ask people to give here. Um, but I got a call earlier this week from someone at World Vision in the wake of the tragedy in Japan. He said, you know, on Friday night, would you mind if we at least make an invitation to give to support the people there? So uh, we have a special envelope, not the Faith and Life, life one. You're welcome to give to that as well. Uh, but a different envelope, which I hope most of you got, that is addressed to World Vision Minneapolis Attention, Joanna Johnson. Uh, if you did not get one of those as you entered, they will be in the narthex. If you want to make a gift to this cause, please make it out to World Vision, and you can write either Japan or Faith and Life in the memo line, but all of those gifts will go towards disaster relief 
in Japan. And I know World Vision thanks you for your generosity. Okay, I think we're gonna take some questions now. So uh, John here has a wireless mic and he's gonna walk around, or if you're able to stand up and you just wanna go to one of these two mics on the stands, we'll take questions for the next uh, 15 minutes or so. Last Lent, our church leadership gave away 700 copies of your book to our congregation. God is using it to change our worldview, and I just want to thank you for being the voice of Christ to us. Hi, I want to say that uh, my niece works for your organization in uh, Portland, Oregon, and really has been blessed by that. Uh, my question is, is it possible for us to change our worldview without seeing the world? Uh, most of the people in Minnesota think a long trip is to Duluth. And, <laughs> and, and, I, and uh, I've been in uh, 30 countries, my wife's been in 35, and I think we have a real passion for world mission, but uh, in our church, very few people travel, and I wonder what your thought would be on that. Yeah, that's a wonderful question, and uh, a couple of years ago, I was speaking at a Christian College, Messiah College, and I had a, a lunch with about 25 of their kind of leadership type students, and I, I asked around the room, I said, raise your hand if you've been to visit a developing world country on a mission trip, and 24 of the 25 hands went up, these young people. And of course I said to them, what's your problem? And uh, he said, I'm going to Africa this summer. He said, I just haven't gone yet. And uh, I bet if you had done the same thing when I was in college, and I've got three of my fraternity brothers here who I'm hoping won't tell any stories about me before I became a Christian, but, um, <laughs> but I bet if we'd asked that at my college, uh, there would have been very few hands out of 25 that would have gone up to say, yeah, I've been to Africa, I've been. This generation of young people has, has an opportunity to see the world that my generation never had. You know, my first international trip at age 31, I know I'm a slow learner, but uh, that's ridiculous. And now when I think of myself as head of World Vision uh, and how my worldview has been exploded by the trips that I've taken. So I really believe that this generation of young people will see the world differently than we did. Um, so my answer to your question is yes, I think we need to see the world because we are so insulated. This is such a comfortable bubble to live in uh, in the United States. And uh, I would say until recently and even today, it's very possible to live here without any intrusion from the world outside if you choose to. Now with the news media and all the other things we have, there are more and more things trying to break into our bubbles. But uh, there's still a lot of Americans that are very insular uh, and live in a bubble. And until you see it, and we take our donors on what we call vision trips because we know uh, if you're a wealthy individual and I ask you for money, you'll write us a check dutifully. But I know that if you see what I've seen, the amount of that check will quintuple when you see it because your heart will be broken. And our founder, Bob Pierce, had this thing he said, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. That was his prayer. And um, it changes you to see and meet the poor face to face, to hear, hear their stories, to know their name. That young girl, Ruth, I'm still a sucker for a sob story. You know, I mean, as much as I've seen, that girl just broke my heart and I'm paying her tuition now. Um, I had to, I had to. How could I walk away and turn my back on her? But before I met her, it was easy to turn my back on a hypothetical girl 
named Ruth that I've never seen. So yes, I, I would encourage people to go in. I'm not a big believer in short-term missions with the goal of helping the poor. Short-term missions help us more than they help the poor. And as I always say, they don't need cheap labor in these countries. Um, but if, if a short-term mission, if a short-term mission is the beginning of a changed worldview in life that leads to a lifetime of service and giving, then please take a short-term mission trip. So. Thank you. Over here. Over here. Um, I have a question that I'm having a hard time putting together in my head, a, a topic that is not often enough brought up. And uh, for starters, I read an article this morning that China is being overrun by desert because their irrigation water has gone dry. They cannot, no longer have enough food to feed their population. Last summer, Russia had a drought and, it, and the failure of their grain harvest and cannot feed their people. Um, and then we look at your friend Ruth, and her mother had to abandon her in order to try desperately to find food for her other eight children. Do you believe, as I do, that the first priority might be to provide universal family planning services, birth control for people that would like to have only one or two or three children at the most, but yet end up having eight because they have no means of getting family planning services? Sure. And does your organization do anything in that regard to provide those services? Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And as it turns out, um, the answer to that question that is really quite elegant is that we have found, and it's been demonstrated in study after study, that when poor communities uh, begin to rise out of their poverty, when education levels improve, when access to clean water improves, when nutrition and healthcare improve, when access to capital improves in the community, um, birth rates fall. Birth rates fall. One of the reasons people have so many children is they can count on three of them dying before their fifth birthday uh, in, in many places. The child mortality rates are as high as 33% in many of the countries and villages I visit. And there's this, this terrible cycle, vicious cycle of births and deaths and despair. But we have learned and proven that especially educating girls and women um, will lower birth rates dramatically. And all you have to do is look at the world. Europe has a negative birth rate. Uh, they're not even at the replacement rate. The United States is about at the replacement rate in birth rate. So the developed countries of the world, none of them have exorbitant birth rates. Um, and it comes with education and all those other things. Now, having said that, we do provide, uh, in many of our programs, family planning services. We try to work with women to help them think about spacing children out more so that they can take care of the ones they have. We don't do anything coercive. We don't have anything to do with abortion. Um, but for women who don't know uh, how they can stop having children or so many children, we try to help them or refer them to a government clinic that can help them as well. 
Um, so yes, we do uh, talk about family planning with women uh, on a totally voluntary basis as they're interested in doing it. We often form a lot of women's groups and cooperatives where women can come together and talk about women's issues. And this is always one of the top issues that women want to talk about in poor communities. Uh, there's a lot of issues they want to talk about. So it, it is uh, a real challenge um, in terms of the growing population in these countries. It is, uh, they're growing at the fastest rates. But we also know the answer is not to sterilize everybody, but to give everyone a basic, healthy life uh, so the birth rate does start to de decline and uh, that all the children can, can have uh, what we call life in all of its fullness uh, in their lives. So. Thank you. I thought you were going to talk about climate change at the beginning, oh, you know. But well, that too. I don't know if I want to. <laughs> uh, it's not changing in Minnesota, is it? I don't know. Hello. Uh, economic systems tend to build societies and, and so forth. Would you comment... Uh, about uh, economic systems and its impact in building the bubble or depressing those that are, don't have so much. And we also talk about, aren't you talking about a social gospel? And uh, isn't that kind of heresy? Well, I'm not an economist. Um, I do know that economics has no morality, you know, so uh, economics, Capitalism, the wealthy get wealthy, the poor don't always benefit. Um, so capitalism by itself has no moral compass. Um, that's why we have laws and regulations and the SEC and all of the other things that we have in our country to try to regulate capitalism and channel it toward good outcomes. Um, now in 2008, 2009, we saw a pretty big hiccup in uh, our, our capitalistic economy here in, in some of the unintended consequences of uh, what happened on Wall Street with derivatives and the housing market and uh, mortgage loans that were too liberal and all of that. So I think we all, we all learned a lesson about regulation is important uh, to keep everybody in the right riverbanks. Um, but also economics is absolutely crucial to the poor. Um, Jeffrey Sachs, who wrote the book The End of Poverty a few years ago, use this metaphor. He said, there are 1.3 billion people in the world that are so poor, they live on virtually the margin of life, $1 a day or less of income. They are so poor that they cannot even reach the bottom rung of the economic ladder. Uh, if they could only reach the bottom rung of that ladder, ladder they might be able to begin to climb up, up the ladder. So World Vision often works with the poorest of the poor who are they're so disconnected from any global economy. They're, they're, they're beneath the ladder, and there's no way for them to get their hand on the rung. And so we've learned, in fact, uh, we work in multiple sectors, what we call sectors, health, education, water, uh, nutrition, food. But economic development is probably our most recent sector that we've become invested in, uh, microenterprise loans, micro lending. Because ultimately, all the things we do in a community, if they're not sustainable by some economic engine, uh, that community will never reach its potential. So we more and more are doing what we call economic livelihood development. And when you get that World Vision gift catalog, I had a wonderful story in Bolivia. You get that gift catalog and you snicker because you get to give a goat to your mother-in-law uh, for Christmas, right? <laughs> give a goat to the old goat. 
<laughs> and uh, I got to be careful. I'm a father-in-law now, and you know, I gotta, but um, but we met a farmer in Bolivia, a man who was. He tried to kill himself twice. He threw himself out of a movie car because he was so depressed that he couldn't support his wife and children, and he didn't want to live anymore. He was, the shame in his country of not being able to support his family was too great. And yet his wife begged him and begged him not to kill himself because that was the coward's way out, and the family needed him. As bad as it was, they still needed a father and a husband. And uh, he got two pigs uh, from the World Vision gift catalog that year, and they started to breed the pigs. And now they've got a whole business selling pigs, breeding pigs. The man is happy. He is proud of himself again. The children are eating. Uh, he's got an income. He's, he's breeding the pigs and selling them, taking the market. He's got an income. He's got a future. Uh, and it turned his life around. Just two pigs uh, did that. But ultimately, underneath that was economics. So, and I, I'm not sure I fully answered your, your first question, but I mean, Economics will not, in and of itself, lift the poor out of poverty. Uh, we've got to take some extraordinary measures to include them in the global economy, to find a way to include them in the global economy, and to uh, try to make sure that the economic system isn't exploitive, as it sometimes is. It can exploit the poor, and uh, World Vision looks out for that kind of stuff around the world. Now, your social justice question, um, <coughs> you know, I write about this in the book, for some reason, the church in America in particular, and probably other places in the world for the last 150 years has been debating whether it's about social action or spiritual transformation through the gospel. Is it about salvation or is it about works? Um, and I'm tempted to say, duh, it's both. I mean, Jesus did both. Uh, you know, he could have said, I see you're sick, but I'm frankly not interested in that. I'm not interested in restoring your sight or healing your bleeding you know, ulcer or uh, allowing the cripple to stand and, and walk or healing the shriveled arm. Why would he bother with that when he had this important gospel to talk about? Well, he did it because the love of Christ is holistic. It, he loves the whole person. He wants the whole person to prosper, you know, mind, body, spirit, soul, and so when we go out into the world equipped with half a gospel, we get half a result, you know, we get half an outcome. And the whole thrust of my book is that if we have the whole gospel, it is the most powerful force on earth. And it's the, it's the force that caused 12 broken down, uneducated apostles in the first century to change the world because they went out with the whole gospel. Uh, and we've read the history books about how you know, during the terrible plagues uh, that affected the Roman Empire, the Christians stayed to care for the sick. And Christianity became such an attractive religion because what kind of people stay at risk to their own life? What kind of people do that uh, to help their fellow man? I want to learn more about that kind of religion. Nobody wants to hear about the kind of religion where you just go in and tell people that they're wrong and they believe the wrong things and you leave. Um, that's not a very winsome, attractive faith. So. I think it's the whole deal. It's the, you know, as I, as I talk about, it's proclamation, it's compassion, and it's justice. And when you put those three together, watch out. Uh, the Lord will be returning in 25 years if we ever put all those together. Yeah. 
I think we all know that any system not based and founded in love will eventually crumble. Most recently we saw that with apartheid in South Africa. It took years and years and years and it fell apart. It was not based in love. I look at the system that we have in this country and I ask myself if it is based in love, particularly with the expenditures that we choose to make year after year after year on our military. Now called the Defense <coughs> Department, but for many, many decades, appropriately called the War Department. We spend more than the next 25 nations combined on our War Department. Would you comment on our political obligation to change this system as we try to do Christ's work in this world? Thank you. That's a heavy question. Um, the, um, the budget debates are going on in Washington and they're fighting like cats and dogs or Republicans and Democrats um, often do. And um, the, Pew, uh, the Pew Foundation, the Pew Charitable Trust did a study a survey on, uh, of Americans saying, here's a list of things that could be cut from our budget. What would you say is the highest priority, you know, the first thing they should cut, and the second thing, and you know, kind of rank these things. What should be cut? Now, they did a subsample of evangelical Christians. So they did a general survey of, you know, the population, and then they took a bunch of evangelical Christians, and they had a few hundred of them. Do you know what the number one priority for budget cutting was for evangelical Christians. Helping the poor internationally. Cut it. Help the poor internationally. That's the number one thing. Number two, cut unemployment benefits to Americans who are unemployed. That was the number two choice. Uh, the number one thing not to cut was the military. That was evangelical Christians. I was shocked. I mean, I was shocked. I wouldn't even have the nerve to say, I'm an evangelical Christian and I think you should just do it to the poor, man. Um, stick it to them, you know, you know, don't give them our money. Um, I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it, I guess it means I've still got some work to do or there's a few people that need to read my book, but um, <laughs> buy multiple copies and give them to people that think that way. <clears throat> now, the military, you know, it's a very sensitive thing and, and we all, you know, admire, you know, young men and women that put their lives on the line because they're, they're told to go and defend their country or fight for this cause. We, 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 you know, we cherish their courage, their bravery, their sacrifice. So, um, but to spend 400, 500 billion dollars a year on that military machine, and I don't think we even have a grasp of how much money that is, you know, how, how much money that, uh, and what that money could do if we tried to make friends with that money in different ways. And, and we need a strong military. We need we are the only superpower in the world militarily right now and we need to have a strong defense, but how strong? As you say, it's more than the 25 nations combined, the next 25 nations combined. Who are we worried about that's gonna whoop us, you know? I mean, we, we, we've got a, a pretty strong military. And I think even uh, Secretary Gates is starting to say we could cut the military budget, uh, Secretary of Defense. You know, Americans, when they're asked, what percent of the federal budget do you think goes to foreign assistance for the poor, uh, the Americans statistically have answered for years, uh, somewhere between 10 and 15 percent. They believe 10 to 15 percent of the U.S. budget goes to foreign assistance. 
Uh, I think 15 was the last number I heard. Then you ask the question, well, how much should we be giving to the foreign assistance overseas? And uh, instead of 15, they'll say, well, maybe 9 or 10% would be right. We give 4 tenths of 1% of the federal budget to help the poor around the world. And when I say help the poor, I'm talking about children who can get a malaria bed net and live instead of die of malaria from the President's Malaria Initiative. I'm talking about people that, uh, uh, children that have kept their mother because she got access to antiretroviral drugs. Their father died of AIDS, infected their mother, but because of George Bush's AIDS PEPFAR plan, they got access to antiretroviral drugs, and these mothers can now stay alive to raise their children. Um, that's what Americans are saying, cut, and it's four-tenths of a percent of the federal budget. So um, I'll give you another one. We sent out an email about two weeks ago. You probably got it, some of you. That, and I said, I don't normally do this. Sent out 500,000 emails to my closest friends. <laughs> and uh, I said, the, the Congress is talking about cutting foreign assistance as much as 40% in the new budget cycle. This would be devastating to children. It would cost lives. It, it, you know, we can't allow this to happen. This would be a great time for you to write or call your elected officials and tell them that you care about foreign assistance and helping children in need. And uh, our switchboards lit up with people wanting to cancel their sponsorships. Um, how dare you ask us to give money to other countries uh, when we're in a recession and we have to cut our budget. And uh, I was frankly surprised, very surprised, that uh, people that are giving to World Vision uh, felt that we should slash the foreign assistance budget 40%. Now, we can argue, is that aid effective, and is the government doing good work? And there's all kinds of art, but I've seen it, and I know it's saving lives. Could it be more efficient? I'm sure it could be more efficient, but it's saving lives. So it, it's, a, it's a tough thing, the way our politics intersect with our faith. And, and I just spoke at the Washington uh, State Prayer Breakfast, the governor's prayer breakfast, and basically I said to, to the legislators there, I said, make no mistake, Government budgets are moral documents which enshrine our moral values and, and tell us what kind of society we want to be. So when you cut assistance to the elderly, when you cut assistance to the disabled, when you cut foreign assistance that's saving the lives of children around the world because some union here or there wants a bigger pension or some interest group wants more subsidies or whatever it is, that's a moral statement that we are making as a society, and we have to start seeing these budget documents as moral documents that enshrine our values. And I asked the legislators there, what kind of state, in this case, do you want to be? Do you want to be the state that cuts the legs out from underneath the homeless and the elderly and the disabled? And, um, or you, frankly, I think sometimes we need to raise taxes rather than do those other things. Um, you know, I'm one that says, I'll pay my taxes. If, it's, if it will make us a better society, I'll pay my fair share and I'll pay a little more. But Let's do one last question. All right, one last question. question. Um, first, by way of introduction, I'm a chemical engineer and I do most of my work in the area of renewable energy. Um, the thing that stands out when you look at all the issues of poverty and economics and, and everything else is it all comes down to energy supply. But when I look at what the actual potential for renewable energy and, and energy in general uh, scattered around the world is, I keep coming up with a balance sheet that doesn't have enough. So the question that, that as a Christian that I'm stuck with is, is 
how do I deal with a situation where it appears that the resources to solve the problem aren't there? And, and I'm guessing that other people working in other areas have that same question. The resources aren't there. The resources don't appear to be there. And yeah, I know the Sermon on the Mount, but the question is, how does a Christian cope with that situation where what we got isn't enough, no matter how we do it? Well, I don't know if you're asking a specific question about energy no, or a general question about what do you do in a world where... It's, it's, it's more about enough. the philosophical question of yeah. how does a Christian deal with a situation where there doesn't appear to be an answer. Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of people would agree, would disagree with you that there's not enough to go around. I mean, there have been all kinds of studies that says there's enough food to feed the world uh, more than once with adequate calories. If, if we could just redistribute everything on the planet in some equitable fashion, there, there's, there's plenty of food, uh, technology. There, there's, we have a lot of the things we need, certainly to include the bottom billion uh, more appropriately in the, into the human race and to the global economy. Um, but I, I think it raises the question is that uh, there's, there's, there is an upper limit to resources. And, you know, I worry about the, 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 the furious consumption of resources that is occurring in the world. If you read Tom Friedman's book, The World is Flat, it'll put a scare into you. And he, he kind of says, you know, you know, when China really gets their economy rolling, they're going to be like four Americas, you know, in terms of gobbling up oil and resources and energy and food. And, um, uh, and there's more than one China coming, coming up from the developing nations. Uh, you look at India and Brazil and others that are. And uh, so we've somehow got to break the cycle of consumption. You know, I mean, eventually you have to start dealing with the consumption because it is not unlimited and we can't consume an unlimited number of resources. Americans are four and a half percent of the world and I think we consume about 24 percent of the world's goods and uh, energy and oil and roughly those are numbers. So if we're four percent consuming 24 percent, what happens when 1.5 billion Chinese start to consume at the same rate Americans are consuming and Europeans are consuming? Um, so it's an unsustainable trajectory and it's going to take uh, some changes in the way we look at resources and the way we recycle resources, the way we use energy. I'm very disappointed that we haven't had a forward-thinking energy policy in the United States because um, I'm not even relating it to the work of World Vision, but it's just so, when I was in college, I read books about how the oil supply is going to run out and, and uh, we've got to find other sources of energy. And, uh, you know, I would love to see us have an energy program that weaned us off of uh, carbon, you know, the carbon economy and, and, and found those renewable resources in a way that didn't pollute and didn't create other problems in our world. So, yeah, I mean, I don't have an answer. If I did, uh, Obama would be calling me to the White House to <laughs> tell him. Um, thank you again all for being here. Thank you. I appreciate the applause. I'm sure Rich does too, but we actually want to give him a gift so then you can applaud again. Uh, Rich, Rich, I need you up here. I'm coming back. Oh, I'm back. We will get you out of here shortly, I promise. And books are for sale. He's happy to talk to you and inscribe a book. 
All I wanted to do was give you a little gift to thank you for coming. It's a piece of granite with the Faith and Life logo, and it says, with thanks to Richard Stearns for bringing Faith to Life, and we do thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.